0: Let's open the Word of God to the Gospel of John in the 15th chapter, and take up on the road to the Mount of Olives in Bethany, where the Garden of Gethsemane was, with the Apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ under a full moon, because it was Passover, as he conveys to them his final instructions for their ministries that they will embark on shortly. If you look back at John chapter 13 and verse 1, and I want to remind you of these precious chapters that we have, the words there in the first verse of John 13, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. This is describing Jesus' love for his eleven apostles. Right. He loved them unto the end. Amen. And so that verse brings us to the Last Supper. And we have verse thir- chapter 13 describing the Last Supper as Jesus identifies Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Then we had John 14, still in the upper room, because at the end of chapter 14, in verse 31, The last five words, Jesus said, arise, let us go hence. Then we have chapter 15 and 16 and 17 on the road to Bethany. They're walking along the road. Jesus with his apostles. Chapters 15, 16, and 17. 15 and 16 are instructions to them. 17 is a prayer he lets them hear. Chapter 18 and verse 1 tells us when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. That brings us to Gethsemane and him taken by the angry mob there. But these chapters are precious, and I hope that you appreciate them. These five chapters take up a quarter of the Gospel of John, and cover only the last six hours of his life. Some have described these chapters as the Holy of Holies because you're in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with his chosen apostles and he is talking to them intimately and personally rather than preaching in public to a mixed multitude of reprobate Jews and believers. This is personal, it's precious There's promises contained here that aren't found in the other Gospels. There's promises contained here and instructions here not found in the rest of the Gospel of John. And I hope that you remember those things about this part of the Gospel of John. This is why we preach expositorily so that we learn the books of the Bible and the chapters of the Bible and their value to us. If you love Jesus Christ and want to delight in him and walk with him, you'll cherish every word. When he is speaking personally and intimately to his chosen ones. Now, the Lord's instructions here are certainly apostolic and ministerial, because that's who he's talking to. He's not talking to the wives of the eleven, he's talking to the eleven. He's not talking to the children of the eleven, he's talking to the eleven. This isn't a general epistle to the believers in Rome. This is him to his 11 apostles. So, certainly, his instructions are apostolic and ministerial, but we can certainly benefit from them as well because we have our own abiding to do for the power that we need to bear the fruit that we're supposed to bear. Their fruit was different. Their fruit was staggering. They turned the world upside down. They even visited Dalmatia, which is quite a chore. How many of you have even been to Dalmatia? The former Yugoslavia. But the Apostle Paul was. Because they had fruit to bear and they bore it. Because they had the power of Christ with them. After the day of Pentecost, these men were different men. And we want to be different men. Jesus knew these men were at risk to lose their fruitfulness, to slip from him, and they were going to be suffering. And so in this chapter, he gives them three lessons. Verses 1 through 8, you better abide in me to have my power because there is no power to do your work anywhere else. Verses 9 through 17, you better love me and love the brethren because that is the unity that ties us all together. It isn't doctrine, men. It's love. Your love of me and your love of each other is going to hold us together. Third, you're going to suffer persecution. I've warned you, they've hated me they're certainly going to hate you. So you better be prepared for that. And those are the three great lessons of John 15. It is not a complicated chapter. It's not a deep chapter. There aren't mysteries here. There's just duties here. And if you're too comfortable, you'll never accomplish or achieve what you're supposed to in this chapter. Now the apostles did achieve great things. But that's because they kept his instructions. They made sure that they abided in Christ, and they kept his words in them. They loved one another, and they preached love in their preaching and in their epistles that they wrote. And they endured suffering, cheerfully, because it united them with Christ. He had suffered for them, and they got to suffer for him. And that's how they looked at it. That's how the Apostle Paul wrote about it. And I hope that you'll remember those three lessons that I gave you in a very brief outline last night of this chapter. John 15, you can look at it and see verses 1 through 8 are about this vine branch relationship and abiding in Christ to be fruitful. Verses 9 through 17 are about loving Christ and loving one another. Because that is what kept them together and kept them unified with heaven and on earth to accomplish the things 11 uneducated, backwoods, fishermen from galilee were going to do right and then in verses 18 down through 25 it's about the persecution that they would suffer lord help us to remember these simple outlines and lessons we want to see jesus words as apostolic ministerial advice and then secondarily apply them to ourselves i always want to be fair with the word of god The minute that you say and think that every word in the Bible is to you personally, you're going to confound the word of God. Let me just back up a few verses to chapter 14 and verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you. You quizzers, Have you ever relied on John 14, 26 to cause you to remember the entire gospel of Matthew before you went and quizzed over its 28 chapters? If you did, you quizzed out backward. (laughs) Because that verse isn't to you. It was never intended for you. He doesn't do that for you. He did that for the apostles. Because these apostles had heard three and a half years of preaching and a lot of it had gone right over their heads. And a lot of it had been lost to their memories. And after he was gone, they were supposed to write gospel accounts of his whole life. How are they going to do that? Because God brought it to their memory by the Holy Ghost. He, he reminded them of everything Jesus had taught them. And he reminded them of all that they had heard. And they wrote it down for us. Amen. And this is not to disparage the word of God. But there are things in the book of Leviticus that are for the Levitical priesthood that you don't really even understand. And you certainly don't know how to apply them because you're not going to kill and bleed out very many animals in your subdivision before they put you away. And you're not going to dip it on your children's ears or sprinkle it on your doorstep. So just we want to keep things in their proper place. Jesus is with 11 men, and he is about to leave them. He has told them he's about to leave them, and they are walking toward Gethsemane, two miles from Jerusalem, and while they're walking, Jesus talks to them. A good pace for walking is four miles an hour. That's a very comfortable pace. You're not going to achieve much at that pace. But it would take you a half an hour to walk the two miles. And how long would it take you to read these three chapters? It wouldn't take very long. We're with the Lord and his apostles, and he's sharing with them what they're going to need to turn the world upside down. Now, what are you going to need to turn your world upside down is the same thing. So, we want to see the words from our Lord to them for their work, and we want to see the words of our Lord to us and our work because it still applies the apostle Paul is still using similar language for the Philippians in Philippians 4:13 that I started with this morning I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me and the thing at hand was not being an apostle and turning the world upside down the thing at hand was being content no matter your circumstances and that hits all of us that hits all of us let me read the first eight verses of John 15. I am the true vine. If I wanted to take my time through this epistle, through this gospel account, do you know where do you know my text would be for today? Right here. I just read it. I am the true vine. Right. That's an incredible clause. It's an incredible statement. There is no other. Amen. I am. The true vine. He's just taught them. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the true vine. Don't you look for strength, satisfaction, supply, nutrition, help, power anywhere else but in Christ? That's right. You lose if it's not Christ. I am the true vine. And it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Amen Amen and amen. This is about discipleship. But the disciples that he's referring to here are special disciples. They're 11 apostles. But we're disciples also, followers of Jesus Christ. These just happen to be 11 special ones. Verse number one, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, chose a metaphor to teach his men. He he used lots of metaphors. He was the great shepherd of the sheep. He was the door of the sheepfold. He's the vine. I am the vine. They had been chosen for great ministries, but their productivity required his power. The main aspects of this metaphor are a vine, a husbandman, branches, and fruit. Let's not make it complicated. It is disgusting to me. It is disgraceful to the gospel that men will fuss about the metaphor and not fully explore the application or meaning of the metaphor. What do I mean by that? Who cares about the details of grapes, vines, farming, pruning, yields, vintages, etc.? Time pursuing those things is wasted time. But that's how many preachers fill up their little 20 minutes of preaching. They would tell you 10 minutes about farming and growing grapes, all of which is worthless. You all know the necessity of a trunk for the branches of a tree and the vine for the branches of a grapevine. You know how simple it is. I don't even want to say this ugly word that starts with P photosynthesis I don't care about photosynthesis all I care about is that a branch that is coming off a vine or the branch coming off the trunk of a tree it better bear fruit and it can only bear fruit by sustaining by getting nutrients up through the trunk or through the vine and if it doesn't and it dries up dies with withers it's cut off and burned up that's all we've got to know And there's one man that's responsible for doing that. And who is it? God, my Father. It's very simple. There's a vine, it's Jesus. There's branches, it's them, and it's us. There's a husbandman, it's God. And there's fruit. And that's what ought to grow out of our lives and be visible and affect others around us. That's what it's all about. Who cares about the details? Who cares If Jesus chose vines from pouring the fruit of the vine at the Last Supper, you would not believe the number of sentences written. I couldn't care less where he got the idea of a vine. Because he poured the fruit of the vine. And what I want to do is direct your attention. This is all by design. I hope some of it is. To get you to look at the word of God and what is the lesson for me rather than the extraneous information that doesn't help me. Who cares if Jesus spotted a vineyard during their two-mile walk from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives? See, they don't know if he did any of these things. And so they speculate and write sentences and get you all waylaid with verse 1. And do you know what? There is glorious truth in verse 1 and it has nothing to do with pouring the fruit of the vine or spotting a vineyard or as they like to wax eloquent about look at Jesus the Lord of glory choosing a vine to represent him. And and feed me. Feed me something. Oh, that's what you're going to do with verse 1? We can do better. There are many false alternatives that men revert to rather than following Jesus Christ. I am the true vine. We want the words. We know exactly what he is saying. I am the true vine. You 11 apostles will not be successful. You will not prosper. You will not bear fruit. You will not turn the world upside down without a very close, intimate, personal relationship with me. That is what is being said. I am the true vine. What would their temptations be? Their number one temptation would be to return to Moses. Moses was not the vine. Moses was not a vine. Moses had no nothing for the apostles of the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ. They would be prone to return to Moses. Because they were going to be on their own in just a few days. They were going to have to go up against the learned elders of Zion. Using that in a different respect than Henry Ford used it. The learned elders of Zion, they were going to have to face the Sanhedrin. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Levites, the priests, they were going to have to face them. And they were 11 backwoods fishermen. I am the true vine. Don't go back to Moses. Reading Leviticus isn't going to help you. Right. I am the true vine. You better keep your relationship close to me. Jesus taught in chapter 14 that they needed to hold to his person and to his doctrine. And it's in verses 6 through 14. I've already preached it. I don't even want to read it to you again. But it's right there, right in context, 10 minutes earlier. 10 minutes earlier. Believe. Believe. Believe my words. Believe my works. Believe my doctrine. Keep my commandments. It's right there. He's explained he's the vine. He's the way to the Father. Come on, man. You know where I'm going. I'm going to the Father and you know the way. How can we know the way, they said. Well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's already explained that. I am the true vine. There are so many other vines in this world. There was no power in Moses' religion if they returned to Jewish temple worship. Was that a temptation for Jews? Indeed it was. The book of Hebrews is to keep them from returning and backsliding to Moses. So the book of Hebrews is written with argument after argument of Jesus is superior to every aspect of the Old Testament. The Old Testament has no power. The Old Testament is bankrupt. Do you want the Bible words? The Old Testament is beggarly. The Old Testament is elementary school only teaching the rudiments. The Old Testament is carnal The Old Testament is fleshly. The Old Testament is worldly. Mm -hmm. The Apostle Paul used those six words and other words like them to describe Old Testament religion. Mm -hmm. It's not enough. There's been a change, a great change. And it's the Reformation taught in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10. There's no power in popes or priests of Rome. There's no power in Peter, even if you thought he were the first pope. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the true vine. They're all devilish heretics. There's no power in Allah, Islam, Mecca, or Muhammad, for they're devilish pagans. There's no power in Mormonism, Joseph Smith, Ellen White, Judge Rutherford of the JWs, or anyone else. There's no power in any man in heaven, earth, or hell, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no power in your pastor. There's no power in your parents. There's no power in your friend. There's no power in your spouse. There's no power in your president. I am the true vine. That's what it means. I couldn't care less about photosynthesis. I am the true vine. If you don't abide in Jesus Christ and make him the love of your life and the pursuit of your life, over anything else, if you are not willing to sacrifice your family, sacrifice your comfort, sacrifice your friends, sacrifice your stuff for him, you are not a Christian, you're not a disciple, and you won't bear any fruit. And some of you don't have much fruit. Some of you don't change lives. Some of you don't affect lives. These men change the world. And we should change lives. We, did, wasn't there a proverb recently? Is today the 17th. I think on the 11th the proverb came out from someone. That said he that winneth souls is wise. Mm-hmm. And the fruit of the righteous is a tree of, tree of life. Are you a tree of life to others? Where are they? We want to be like these men as much as we possibly can be. And there's only one way. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason. This first clause, the emphasis in our church, it always better be the preeminence of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. We want to make it all about him, never about us. Never about the pastor, all about him. And we just want to keep saying that because that's what we want to do in our church. And my father is the husbandman. A husbandman is a farmer. A husbandman here is a farmer that cares for a vineyard to maximize its productivity. In the Bible, it's also called a vine dresser. If you look up the definition of a vine dresser, it's a husbandman occupied in the pruning, training, and cultivation of vines. A husbandman here, or a vine dresser, is the one that goes around and and checks the branches and sees if there's a nice cluster of grapes hanging. And if it's dried up and its leaves are dwarfed and it's sucking nutrients out of the vine... It's taking nutrients out of the vine, but not producing a cluster of grapes. Cut the ugly thing off and burn it up. That's what a husbandman does. It makes sense. Does it make sense to you? And so we appreciate that when the Lord does it to our church. Because we get rid of dry twigs, and we get another branch that bears a cluster of grapes. And so that's what a husbandman does. And it's necessary for total overall maximized productivity. It's really a pretty neat science. You've got limited resource. Did I say I wasn't going to go there? Let's not go there. You all know what it's about. It's maximizing fruit production. I love max. We want to maximize production. We want to win our race. And we want our church to win our race as a church. Not just any one of us individually. The husbandman, Jehovah, is the vine dresser. The God of heaven set up a kingdom in the days of Rome's great power and he rules over it. He gave all authority to the Lord Jesus Christ as the king of his spiritual kingdom. As the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, he judges his own kingdom and he judges his apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. He judges them and he judges those under their care. He has the authority, he has the power, the right and the means to bless or curse anyone. He can bless and chasten to bear more fruit, called pruning, or purging, feeding, fertilizing, or he can cut that thing off and burn it up. He's the Lord of glory. It's his kingdom. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus had thoroughly taught throughout his ministry the close relationship he had to the Father. Rejecting Jesus and rejecting the doctrine of Jesus is the same as rejecting God the Father. He had taught that. The father loves his son. Any disrespect to Jesus Christ brings the wrath of God down. That wrath of God can be chastening wrath. That wrath of God can be everlasting wrath of the eternal torments of hell. As it is for all reprobates. If Jehovah God is the husbandman, this fact is great comfort for us to fear him and obey him. And it's a great warning against backsliding. It's all in one, one clause. And my father is the husbandman. That's serious business. Going to church is not driving to an address and sitting in a pew. Right. That isn't Christ's religion. That's not Christianity. It's not even second cousin. It's disgusting. It's lukewarm Vomit. It's what Jesus Christ blows out of his mouth and spews out. He can't stand it. He would rather you were cold on a golf course cursing than to play games with his religion. And it's all in this first verse. I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Now if my father is the husbandman We have all the power of the universe at our disposal to accomplish anything he wants us to do. If my father is the husbandman, you better be on your guard and beware because it's serious business taking my name and pretending you're a Christian. So that's what we get out of verse one. Verse two, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. That's the work of a husbandman. That's the work of a vine dresser. And who's the vine dresser and husbandman in this case? The Lord Jehovah, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm the vine, but he's the husbandman in this picture that God wants us to have. We are the branches. He's going to tell us that down here in verse 5. You're the branches, he's the vine. We want to be attached to him. How are we attached to him? Let's make this so simple. By faith. We believe in him and are attached to him. By love of him. By love of his doctrine. Love of his kingdom. Love of his people. And by obedience to his commandments. He just said it 10 minutes earlier in chapter 14. So much so that he worked his way down to verse 20 and said, at that day, and we understand that to be after his resurrection, just a few days later, at that day, ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Now that is close unity. And what is it based on? Faith, love, and obedience. Do you want me to simplify it? Three things. Faith, love, and obedience. Faith in God, love of Christ, and obedience to his commandments. That's how we abide in him. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Every branch in me. This must be in Christ practically. This is not in Christ eternally, legally, vitally, or finally. Can you be taken away finally once you're in heaven? Not a chance. Can you be taken away out of the book of life, out of election? Not a chance. Can you be taken away from justification? Not a chance. Can you be unborn again? No. 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 So it's none of those phases of salvation. This is the practical phase of salvation of ministry and conversion. Ministry, because we're talking about apostles, conversion, when we apply it to all of us, This is the practical phase of salvation. Can you lose your practical salvation? Most do. Why does that surprise anyone? It baffles me. I know where it came from. It came from puritanical Calvinistic writing because the Arminians know. Let me tell you something. The Arminians are far wiser than Calvinists when it comes to can a Christian lose their salvation? Absolutely, definitely, for sure. We just define it by the practical phase of salvation. They can't lose their election, their justification, their regeneration, or their glorification. But can they lose their conversion? Certainly. They deconvert. Happens all the time. Happened in the New Testament. So, every branch in me, in Christ practically... In Christ practically. Can there be false professors there? Sure, but they're not really in Christ. So why do you even want to talk about them? Right. A false professor, in the in the use of these words by Calvinists, is a reprobate that gets baptized. The Lord doesn't care about reprobates that get baptized, and either do I. Right. And why do you? Nothing has changed in their lives. They were born going to hell, and they die going to hell. Who cares if they squeeze into a church? But are there elect in Christ that don't bear fruit? Most of them. It's sad. It's worse than that. It's terrible. We need to return to the time of the martyrs. There was more fruit bearing in the time of the martyrs. There's too much prosperity today. There's too much peace. It's too comfortable. So we're drowning in luxurious living and lazy lifestyles. You read through the books of the New Testament, those churches that were just months and years removed from having an apostolic ministry. I'm nothing compared to the Apostle Paul. But his churches would quickly go astray. Ephesus, that was Paul's church. Revelation two, they had lost their first love. Laodicea was another church of Paul's. He wrote epistle to the church at Laodicea. It was to be exchanged with the epistle to the Colossians. They were lukewarm. They weren't bearing fruit. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Thank you, Lord, for taking them away. Let's make sure He doesn't take us away. Right. How do we make sure He doesn't take us away? We abide in Christ and we bear fruit. What is fruit here? It's part of the metaphor, or the parable being explained, because we've got to remember the vine. So it's grapes. We've got a vine, we've got branches, we've got a husband or a vine dresser, and we've got grapes. So that's the metaphor. What are the grapes? What's the fruit? Of a Christian's life. For the apostles, it was to be the foundation stones of the New Testament church. That was serious fruit. For us, for us, it's to bear the fruit of the spirit in our lives and to influence lives around us by winning souls and being a tree of life to others. That tree of life is not helping them think politically. You haven't helped anyone to help them think politically. It's not to help them work hard. That isn't the Christian life, to help someone work hard. The Christian life is to show them Christ and teach them, show them, move them, press them, provoke them to be lovers of Christ and to find their all in all in him. Finding their all in Christ, they will end up being hard workers. Finding their love in Christ, they will end up knowing where politics fits in. Because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He tells them to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He tells them, Caesar is under my foot, he's under my thumb. And so everything finds its balance by us leading others to Jesus Christ. We want our church, it always to be the preeminence of Christ. There's a danger in our book of Proverbs. I try to finish every Proverb commentary, 915 of them, by turning the reader toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't skip that last paragraph or the penultimate paragraph, the last two. Read them because those are the more important ones. We want to take the principle of wisdom that's given to us in the Proverb and apply it to our Christian life. Every branch in me. Oh every branch in me. Men. You're gonna have some other apostles. There's gonna be some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. They're not going to abide in they're not gonna bear fruit. My father's gonna cut them off. What product what was their productivity? They were to preach the gospel and to do miracles worldwide. Go ye and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark chapter 16, Matthew chapter 28, and so forth. They were to gather fruit unto eternal life, which is the conversion of sinners. John chapter 4. Peter declared at the council of Jerusalem that Gentile fruit was by his mouth. God chose men. He stood up in that council and said, God chose by my mouth that the Gentiles would hear the gospel and would believe. That's tremendous fruit. If they did not abide in Christ, but had gone back to Moses if they hadn't abided in Christ and had gone to Peter, if they hadn't abided in Christ and gone to the Egyptian religion, there wasn't going to be conversions of Cornelius' household. Cornelius' household was converted because Christ was preached to Cornelius. He already feared God. He knew of this historical person named Jesus, but Peter got to tell him all about Jesus. And he believed it and obeyed. Paul outworked the other apostles and got Corinth. He says, Though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you only have one Father. I have begotten you through the gospel. 1 Corinthians 4 15. Our Lord's parable, the talents and the pounds, surely applies to the apostles. He gave one to a man, two to a man, five to a man. And the word talent is not an ability. The word talent is an amount of money. That's why I prefer Luke at times, because he uses pounds. And you say, well that does, does he, did he add weights to them? No, because you still aren't thinking. It's an investment, because Jesus gets to the end and said, why didn't you put my talent in the bank? Well, how do you dance in your bank account? How do you, listen, it's all nonsense. It's monetary amounts. It's an investment of grace. It's an investment of grace. And one man had an investment of grace and did nothing with it. He hid it in a napkin. Look at my beautiful coin, Lord. Look at that. Take it from him and give it to the man with ten. Because in Jesus Christ's religion, the poor get poorer and the rich get richer if you don't take advantage of the vine. Right. You're, here's what happens. If you're a little dinky branch and you're not bearing much fruit, a good husbandman will cut you off because you are taking nutrients that could go to another branch that is highly efficient and bearing more. The poor get poorer and the rich get richer. The branches grow stronger because there's more in the metaphor that Jesus Christ gives us. There are definite rewards for ministerial faithfulness taught throughout the Bible. And faithful ministers are very conscious of their duty to Christ, not their duty to men. Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. What other productivity was expected of the apostles and of us also? God saved us to have good works. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. So that is the fruit that we ought to have in our lives. The good works, a changed life. What the Bible describes the good work. So the Bible says, you starting with faith, good. The devils have it too, but you've got a good start. Faith, let's add to that faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and knowledge, patience, temperance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Those are things called fruit. Those are good works. And those are the things that we're supposed to add. You heard some from Psalm 15. Things we're not supposed to do, things we are supposed to do. They're good works. And we want to be bearing that fruit. It's the best way to live. It's the only way to live. It's the God-pleasing way to live. He won't cut you off of Christ. It helps other people to see your example. You provoke them by your living example. We want to show and tell people about Jesus Christ and good works mm-hmm. disciples have visible spiritual fruit and good works let your light so shine before men that men will see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven Amen. fruit is a Christ- is Christian growth and grace it's the fruit of the spirit love joy how happy are you we know because it's on your face a person that says you don't know how happy I am is a liar to themselves and a believer of the lie. That's right. That's right. Because the Bible says that a merry heart hath a cheerful countenance. That's right. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. There's no limit on these things. How big of a cluster can you have, Zach? Zach. And I say that to every one of you. Nathan, how big of a cluster can you have? I don't care if you're Cabernet or white Zinfandel grapes. How big of a cluster of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or of faith, virtue, knowledge, patience, godliness, temperance, brotherly, kindness, charity or hospitality, entertainment, love of the brethren. Lord, help us. Right, there it is. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And there's all kinds of ways that he can take us away. A true Christian has a changed life with new conduct. What God and Christ have done for us should produce purification of our lives and production of fruit. He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. Right, right. He prunes his own bush. He prunes his own branch. Right. First John 3:3, Because we've been adopted as the sons of God. Right, right. That's an incredible concept, thought, doctrine, fact. Right. That we've been adopted by God to be his children for him to bestow the universe to us by his last will and testament through the death of Jesus Christ. We're right. going to rule the universe right. as the sons of God. 1 John 3, 1 through 2 says that, but verse 3 says, He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. We want to be like God our Father is. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. God cannot and will not take us away from our eternal, legal, vital, or final phases of salvation. If you don't know those, you need to go find out about them. We can only lose our practical salvation. We truly cannot be taken out of Jesus Christ in those other ways. However, you can lose your place in the practical phase in both Christ or his kingdom. God took Eli and his entire family away. God took King Saul and his entire family away. They didn't even really know it till they were gone. Everyone else knew it because it was in writing. And we have this in writing. God took Eli and Saul out of his church and away from his blessings. Saul could have had the dynasty that David ended up with. God sends heresies to get rid of those not abiding in Christ. Heresies will arise among us. I'm waiting for the next one. Not eagerly, but I'm waiting. It's coming. We'll have some sort of a heresy arise among us because the Bible promises it to get rid of some more branches not bearing fruit and it doesn't matter whether they're reprobate or elect that's none of your business we don't want them as part of our church whether they're reprobate or elect if they don't bear fruit it's 1st corinthians 11:19 for there must be also heresies among you there must be heresies among you right. there must be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest that the ones abiding in me and the ones bearing fruit can be visibly displayed as not going along with the heresy. And so every time it happens, I wonder what the fallout will be. What will the collateral damage be by other little weaklings that cannot understand that heresies are God's gift to us? To prune branches. Oh, I love this husbandman. Listen, I have worked for other bosses before, and I did not respect them because they did not have the courage or the authority to do what was necessary to have the most productive organization. But I work for the Lord of glory, and he has never failed me. And he has never failed this church. And he takes stones away and replaces them with better stones. And he takes branches away and blesses the remaining branches to bear more fruit. They went out from us because they were not truly of us. And God will make sure that he exposes them. He can take away your physical life for disobedience. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. The the Corinthians that were weak, sickly, and in the church cemetery... Many of them slept, meaning their bodies were horizontal in the cemetery at the church of Corinth, Paul's church. God can take them away physically. Jesus promised to take the spirit from Ephesus. I will take my candlestick away. He promised to spew those out at Laodicea. He can take his spirit away and leave a dry carcass in here. He can do that to you. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Corinth had allowed false teachers in and could lose much because they couldn't retain in memory the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that is filled with hope, by which also ye are saved if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. God could so deceive you, deceive your family, or in worst case, deceive your pastor to where we would be misled and lose the hope of the gospel as they did at Corinth Paul's church they allowed teachers that taught there was no resurrection of the dead a minister can cost himself and hearers practical salvation take heed unto thyself Paul told Timothy take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine continue in them those two things. Lest you use, lose your salvation and those that hear you. Right. You can remain a visible member, but have leanness of soul. Psalm 106 and verse 15. Israel begged God for quail. Why did they need quail? Because they weren't happy with manna. Why did they have manna? Because God gave them manna and God had given them his promises. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Do you know where those words come from? I hope you know they're in Luke 4, 4, and they're lost in all modern translations of the Bible. But they come from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. God dwelt with those people. The thing that should have excited them was what excited Joshua. When Moses would go into the tabernacle and God would come down and talk face to face with Moses. That's how it's described. Moses didn't see the face of God. That's how it's described to help you understand that it was a close relationship. Because when it's face to face, is it better than Skype? Is it better than a text? Is it better than when he's in Portugal? It better be if it's not. Talk to Sherry. We want face-to-face. They had face-to-face with God. But they wanted bread. Then they wanted quail. And so God sent them quail. But do you know what he did when he gave them quail? He sent leanness into their souls. He can take us away in all kinds of ways. You know, we simply think, he's going to kill me. Oh, that's the nicest thing he can do to you. If you're a child of God, the nicest thing He can do to you is take your life. Right. Yep. Then you're in heaven, and you can't sit anymore. You don't have any more of our troubles. What's the worst thing he can do? Make you prosperous and send leanness into your soul. Yeah. That's what he can do. And that's what He does. And when it, when it happens to a minister, how much fruit is being bore by his ministry? He's talking to ministers. Nothing dries up. Lord, have mercy upon us all. Paul took care to keep his body under rule to avoid himself being a castaway. Did Paul say that? Yes. But I keep under my body, lest when I have preached to others, I myself, I have been asked so many times can a child of God fall away? Where do they get the question? Of course he can. Paul was afraid he would. But I keep under my body, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The best example of a castaway is King Saul. The Lord left him and didn't return. The Lord left him. He spent his last night with the witch of Endor. Terrible. He could have had the dynasty of Israel. Jesus could have been the son of Saul. The Bible says so. But wasn't Jesus prophesied to come out of Judah? That's right. Because God already knew all that was going to take place with Saul of Benjamin. That profane man. Lord, help us look at these verses and to let the fear of the Lord take hold of us and yet the comforting ministry of the Lord. This is, this is not to scare them. This was to tell them, you need me. You need me. You need me. You really need me. That's what it's all about because he said in verse 18 of the previous chapter, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So I'm I'm your vine guys. I know I'm leaving. I know I'm leaving and you're scared. You're thinking Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost is going to have 1 million people. There's going to be 100,000 on Temple Mount. And you're going to be gone and you want us with our third grade reading experience from Nazareth to get up and preach. In front of those scribes and Pharisees. Those doctors. Doctors of the law. You want us to do that. I am the true vine. Don't look anywhere else. Keep yourself close to me. Love me. Love my doctrine. Keep my commandments. I'll be with you. My father will be with you. He won't be snipping. Unless you have a little bit of imperfection. That he can make better. He's going to be there to help you. It's a husbandman. He's going to be fertilizing the vine. He's going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. Both by the Holy Spirit. Guys, don't be scared. You can do this. You can bear much fruit. But you've got to abide in me. Because every branch that doesn't, doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he's going to nourish it, cut it, clip it, for decorative purposes, for productive purposes, to make it better. So enjoy his chastening. Get into Psalm 119, 67, 71, and 75 about the faithfulness of God's afflictions because they make you better. And did those apostles get better? Did Peter get better? Was Peter pruned between this night and Pentecost? It's only 50 days. Was he pruned? Did it bear fruit? What in the world happened to Peter? I want it to happen to me. Lord, let it happen to me. What did I just say? I'm going to have to desert you for 24 hours and see what you do in 24 hours of desertion. Anyone ever been there? Mm -hmm. That's what it took for Peter. Satan hath desired to have you and to sift you. But I've prayed for you, Peter, when you're converted, when you come out of this, strengthen your brethren. That's how he perfects us. But it's the, the father's the husbandman. Instead of, this is not a terrifying passage. You know, I've got to deal with some terrible events that happened because of the words, he taketh away. He taketh away. The Apostle Paul knew about that possibility. You know, he warned all the Gentile converts in Romans chapter 11. He said, be not high-minded. You Gentile converts, don't be high-minded because God has cut off some branches of the Jews and grafted you in. If you are not a natural branch, he can uh, get rid of you a little easier than the natural branches. So be not high-minded, but fear. And behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. To, to To the Jews, he was severe. To you, he's been good, but he can be severe to you if you don't abide. Romans chapter 11. What does it mean to abide, brethren? To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and everything he's taught and what the Bible says about him? To love and embrace Jesus Christ as the joy and purpose and person of your life. To love his doctrine, his teaching, his commandments, his way of doing things, and to obey all of his commandments. That is to abide in him. Apostles, Don't you dare go back to Moses. Don't neglect my doctrine. Don't cuddle up with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I've blasted them every day of your lives. I've accused them of having the leaven of, the leaven of the Pharisees. I've told you all those things. Don't cuddle up with them. I'm the true vine. You hang with me. You follow me. Keep my commandments. Love me. My Father will love you. We will continue. You can continue in our love of you, and we will see you through what you're about to do, and you'll turn the world upside down. Let's turn this church upside down. Let's turn our families upside down. God hasn't guaranteed us every single family member but every family member that is one of his, let's make them great Christ lovers. Let's make our church great Christ lovers. God hasn't guaranteed that everyone sitting in here today is one of his elect children. But let's push and press and exhort and encourage and those that are elect will bear fruit and those that won't will leave because they won't like this church. There's just three questions that need to be asked in the first eight verses. Just, Just a there's really only three questions what does it mean to abide in Christ believe love obey I simplified it to three words there's three questions number one all eight verses can be answered with three questions what does it mean to abide in Christ it doesn't mean to visit him on Sundays it means to abide in him you're with him in him seeking him pursuing him loving him all the time Second question is, how can some be taken away? I just showed you there's all kinds of ways you can be taken away. Taken away from Christ, you don't even know it. Taken away physically. Third question, what is much fruit? And I've mentioned that. Fruit of the good works that we're supposed to walk in, that God saved us to walk in. It's being a better husband, being a better wife, being a better parent, being a better child, being a better citizen, being a better master, being a better servant. It's bearing the fruit of love, joy, peace, and the rest of the fruit as it's mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. It's crucifying our flesh and the lust thereof. It's doing Psalm 15 and doing it for the Lord's sake. That's fruit. It's working to share Jesus Christ with others. It's being a tree of life to others. It's correcting brethren that are in error to save their souls from death. He that winneth souls is wise, and the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. It's doing those things. We're not apostles. But we have fruit that we should be bearing. Change lives. Influence on others for the glory of God and the love of Christ. Lord, help us to do these things. Three questions. What does it mean to abide in Christ? How can some be taken away? What is much fruit for most of us since we're not apostles? Three questions you need to answer. I'm going to abide in Christ so that I am not taken away in any sense of the word and that I will bear much fruit. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Stand with me, please. Because it was Passover, let's open the word of God to the Gospel of John in the 15th chapter, and take up on the road to the Mount of Olives in Bethany, where the Garden of Gethsemane was, with the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ under a full moon, because it was Passover, as he conveys to them his final instructions for their ministries that they will embark on shortly. If you look back at John chapter 13 and verse 1, and I want to remind you of these precious chapters that we have, the words there in the first verse of John 13, now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. This is describing Jesus' love for his 11 apostles. He loved them unto the end. And so that verse brings us to the Last Supper. And we have verse thir- chapter 13 describing the Last Supper as Jesus identifies Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Then we had John 14 still in the upper room because at the end of chapter 14 in verse 31, the last five words Jesus said, Arise, let us go hence. Then we have chapter 15 and 16 and 17 on the road to bethany they're walking along the road jesus with his apostles chapters 15 16 and 17 15 and 16 are instructions to them 17 is a prayer he lets them hear chapter 18 and verse 1 tells us when jesus had spoken these words he went forth with his disciples over the brook kedron where was a garden into the which he entered And his disciples. That brings us to Gethsemane and him taken by the angry mob there. But these chapters are precious, and I hope that you appreciate them. These five chapters take up a quarter of the Gospel of John and cover only the last six hours of his life. Some have described these chapters as the Holy of Holies, because you're in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with his chosen apostles. And he is talking to them intimately and personally rather than preaching in public to a mixed multitude of reprobate Jews and believers. This is personal. It's precious. There's promises contained here that aren't found in the other Gospels. There's promises contained here and instructions here not found in the rest of the Gospel of John. And I hope that you remember those things about this part of the Gospel of John. This is why we preach expositorily so that we learn the books of the Bible and the chapters of the Bible and their value to us. If you love Jesus Christ and want to delight in him and walk with him, you'll cherish every word Amen. when he is speaking personally and intimately to his chosen ones. That's right. Now the Lord's instructions here are certainly apostolic and ministerial because that's who he's talking to. He's not talking to the wives of the 11. He's talking to the 11. He's not talking to the children of the 11. He's talking to the 11. This isn't a general epistle to the believers in Rome. This is him to his 11 apostles. So, certainly, his instructions are apostolic and ministerial, but we can certainly benefit from them as well because we have our own abiding to do for the power that we need to bear the fruit that we're supposed to bear. Their fruit was different. Their fruit was staggering. They turned the world upside down. They even visited Dalmatia, which is quite a chore. How many of you have even been to Dalmatia? The former Yugoslavia, but the Apostle Paul was because they had fruit to bear and they bore it because they had the power of Christ with them. After the day of Pentecost, these men were different men, and we want to be different men. Jesus knew these men were at risk to lose their fruitfulness, to slip from him, and they were going to be suffering. And so in this chapter, he gives them three lessons. Verses 1 through 8, You better abide in me to have my power, because there is no power to do your work anywhere else. Verses 9 through 17 You better love me and love the brethren because that is the unity that ties us all together. It isn't doctrine, men. It's love. Your love of me and your love of each other is going to hold us together. Third, you're going to suffer persecution. I've warned you. They've hated me. They're certainly going to hate you. So you better be prepared for that. And those are the three great lessons of John 15. It is not a complicated chapter. It's not a deep chapter. There aren't mysteries here. There's just duties here. And if you're too comfortable, you'll never accomplish or achieve what you're supposed to in this chapter. Now, the apostles did achieve great things, but that's because they kept his instructions. They made sure that they abided in Christ and they kept his words in them. They loved one another and they preached love in their preaching and in their epistles that they wrote and they endured suffering. Cheerfully, because it united them with Christ. He had suffered for them, and they got to suffer for him. And that's how they looked at it. That's how the Apostle Paul wrote about it. And I hope that you'll remember those three lessons that I gave you in a very brief outline last night of this chapter. John 15. You can look at it and see verses 1 through 8 are about this vine-branch relationship and abiding in Christ to be fruitful. Verses 9 through 17 are about loving Christ and loving one another. Because that is what kept them together and kept them unified with heaven and on earth to accomplish the things 11 uneducated backwoods fishermen from Galilee were going to do. And then in verses 18 down through 25, it's about the persecution that they would suffer. Lord, help us to remember these simple outlines and lessons. We want to see Jesus' words as apostolic ministerial advice and then secondarily apply them to ourselves. I always want to be fair with the word of God. The minute that you say and think that every word in the Bible is to you personally, you're going to confound the word of God. Let me just back up a few verses to chapter 14 and verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you. You quizzers, have you ever relied on John fourteen twenty-six? to cause you to remember the entire Gospel of Matthew before you went and quizzed over its 28 chapters? If you did, you quizzed out backward. <laughs> because that verse isn't to you. Right. It was never intended for you. He doesn't do that for you. He did that for the apostles. Because these apostles had heard three and a half years of preaching, and a lot of it had gone right over their heads. And a lot of it had been lost to their memories. And after he was gone, they were supposed to write gospel accounts of his whole life. How are they going to do that? Because God brought it to their memory by the Holy Ghost. He he reminded them of everything Jesus had taught them. And he reminded them of all that they had heard. And they wrote it down for us. And this is not to disparage the word of God. But there are things in the book of Leviticus that are for the Levitical priesthood that you don't really even understand. And you certainly don't know how to apply them. Because you're not going to kill and bleed out very many animals in your subdivision before they put you away. And you're not going to dip it on your children's ears. Or sprinkle it on your doorstep. So just, we want to keep things in their proper place. Jesus is with 11 men, and he is about to leave them. He has told them he's about to leave them and they are walking toward Gethsemane, two miles from Jerusalem. And while they're walking, Jesus talks to them. A good pace for walking is four miles an hour. That's a very comfortable pace. You're not going to achieve much at that pace, but it would take you a half an hour to walk the two miles. And how long would it take you to read these three chapters? It wouldn't take very long. We're with the Lord and his apostles, and he's sharing with them what they're going to need to turn the world upside down. Now, what are you going to need to turn your world upside down is the same thing. So, we want to see the words from our Lord to them for their work, and we want to see the words of our Lord to us and our work because it still applies the Apostle Paul is still using similar language for the Philippians in Philippians 4.13 that I started with this morning. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And the thing at hand was not being an apostle and turning the world upside down. The thing at hand was being content no matter your circumstances. And that hits all of us. That hits all of us. Let me read the first eight verses of John 15. I am the true vine. If I wanted to take my time through this epistle, through this gospel account, mm-hmm. do you know where you know my text would be for today? Right here. I just read it. I am the true vine. Right. That's an incredible clause. It's an incredible statement. There is no other. Amen. I am Amen. the true vine. Right. He's just taught them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the true vine. Don't you look for strength, satisfaction, supply, nutrition, help, power, anywhere else but in Christ. That's right. You lose if it's not Christ. I am the true vine. And my Father is the husbandman. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Amen Amen and amen. This is about discipleship. But the disciples that he's referring to here are special disciples. They're 11 apostles. But we're disciples also, followers of Jesus Christ. These just happen to be 11 special ones. Verse number 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit chose a metaphor to teach his men. He he used lots of metaphors. He was the great shepherd of the sheep. He was the door of the sheepfold. He's the vine. I am the vine. They had been chosen for great ministries, but their productivity required his power. The main aspects of this metaphor are a vine, a husbandman, branches, and fruit. Let's not make it complicated. It is disgusting to me, it is disgraceful to the gospel, that men will fuss about the metaphor and not fully explore the application or meaning of the metaphor. What do I mean by that? Who cares about the details of grapes, vines, farming, pruning, yields, vintages, etc.? Time pursuing those things is wasted time. But that's how many preachers fill up their little 20 minutes of preaching. They would tell you 10 minutes about farming and growing grapes, all of which is worthless. You all know the necessity of a trunk for the branches of a tree and the vine for the branches of a grapevine. You know how simple it is. I don't even want to say this ugly word that starts with P. Photosynthesis. I don't care about photosynthesis. All I care about is that a branch that is coming off a vine or the branch coming off the trunk of a tree, it better bear fruit, and it can only bear fruit by sustaining, by getting nutrients up through the trunk or through the vine. Right. And if it doesn't, and it dries up, dies, with, withers, it's cut off and burned up. Right. That's all we've got to know. And there's one man that's responsible for doing that. And who is it? God, my Father. It's very simple. There's a vine, it's Jesus. There's branches, it's them, and it's us. There's a husbandman, it's God, and there's fruit. And that's what ought to grow out of our lives and be visible and affect others around us. That's what it's all about. Who cares about the details? Who cares if Jesus chose vines from pouring the fruit of the vine at the Last Supper? You would not believe The number of sentences written. I couldn't care less where he got the idea of a vine. Because he poured the fruit of the vine. And what I want to do is direct your attention. This is all by design. I hope some of it is. To get you to look at the word of God and what is the lesson for me. Rather than the extraneous information that doesn't help me. Who cares If Jesus spotted a vineyard during their two-mile walk from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. See, they don't know if he did any of these things. And so they speculate and write sentences and get you all waylaid with verse 1. And do you know what? There is glorious truth in verse 1, and it has nothing to do with pouring the fruit of the vine or spotting a vineyard. Or, as they like to wax eloquent about, look at Jesus, the Lord of glory, choosing a vine to represent him. And, and feed me. Feed me something. Oh, that's what you're going to do with verse 1? We can do better. Amen. There are many false alternatives that men revert to rather than following Jesus Christ. I am the true vine. We want the words. We know exactly what he is saying. I am the true vine. You 11 apostles will not be successful. You will not prosper. You will not bear fruit. You will not turn the world upside down without a very close, intimate, personal relationship with me. That is what is being said. I am the true vine. What would their temptations be? Their number one temptation would be to return to Moses. Moses was not the vine. Moses was not a vine. Moses had nothing for the apostles of the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ. They would be prone to return to Moses because they were going to be on their own in just a few days. They were going to have to go up against the learned elders of Zion, using that in a different respect than Henry Ford used it. The learned elders of Zion, they were going to have to face the Sanhedrin. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Levites, the priests, they were going to have to face them. And they were 11 backwoods fishermen. I am the true vine. Don't go back to Moses. Reading Leviticus isn't going to help you. I am the true vine. You better keep your relationship close to me. Jesus taught in chapter 14 that they needed to hold to his person and to his doctrine. And it's in verses 6 through 14. I've already preached it. I don't even want to read it to you again. But it's right there, right in context, 10 minutes earlier. 10 minutes earlier. Believe. Believe. Believe my words. Believe my works. Believe my doctrine. Keep my commandments. It's right there. He's explained he's the vine. He's the way to the Father. Come on, man. You know where I'm going. I'm going to the Father, and you know the way. Right. How can we know the way, they said. Well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's already explained that. I am the true vine. There are so many other vines in this world. There was no power in Moses' religion if they returned to Jewish temple worship. Was that a temptation for Jews? Right. Indeed it was. The book of Hebrews is to keep them from returning and backsliding to Moses. So the book of Hebrews is written with argument after argument of Jesus is superior to every aspect of the Old Testament. The Old Testament has no power. The Old Testament is bankrupt. Do you want the Bible words? The Old Testament is beggarly. The Old Testament is elementary school. Only teaching the rudiments. The Old Testament is carnal the Old Testament is fleshly. Right. The Old Testament is worldly. Mm-hmm. The Apostle Paul used those six words and other words like them to describe Old Testament religion. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not enough. There's been a change, a great change, yeah. and it's the Reformation taught in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10. Right. There's no power in popes or priests of Rome. There's no power in Peter, even if you thought he were the first pope. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the true vine. They're all devilish heretics. There's no power in Allah, Islam, Mecca, or Muhammad, for they're devilish pagans. There's no power in Mormonism, Joseph Smith, Ellen White, Judge Rutherford of the JWs, or anyone else. There's no power in any man in heaven, earth, or hell, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no power in your pastor. There's no power in your parents. There's no power in your friend. There's no power in your spouse. There's no power in your president. I am the true vine. That's what it means. I couldn't care less about photosynthesis. I am the true vine. If you don't abide in Jesus Christ and make him the love of your life and the pursuit of your life, over anything else, if you are not willing to sacrifice your family, sacrifice your comfort, sacrifice your friends, sacrifice your stuff for him, you are not a Christian, you're not a disciple, and you won't bear any fruit. And some of you don't have much fruit. Some of you don't change lives. Some of you don't affect lives. These men change the world. And we should change lives. Wasn't there a proverb recently? Is today the 17th. I think on the 11th the proverb came out from someone. That said he that winneth souls is wise. Mm -hmm. And the fruit of the righteous is a Tree tree of life. Are you a tree of life to others? Where are they? We want to be like these men as much as we possibly can be. And there's only one way. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason. This first clause, the emphasis in our church, it always better be the preeminence of Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. We want to make it all about Him, never about us. Never about the pastor, all about Him. Amen. And we just want to keep saying that. Because that's what we want to do in our church. And my father is the husbandman. A husbandman is a farmer. A husbandman here is a farmer that cares for a vineyard to maximize its productivity. In the Bible, it's also called a vine dresser. If you look up the definition of a vine dresser, it's a husbandman occupied in the pruning, training, and cultivation of vines. A husbandman here, or a vine dresser, is the one that goes around and and checks the branches and sees if there's a nice cluster of grapes hanging. And if it's dried up and its leaves are dwarfed and it's sucking nutrients out of the vine... It's taking nutrients out of the vine but not producing a cluster of grapes. Cut the ugly thing off and burn it up. Right. That's what a husbandman does. It makes sense. Does it make sense to you? And so we appreciate that when the Lord does it to our church. Because we get rid of dry twigs and we get another branch that bears a <laughs> cluster of grapes. And so that's what a husbandman does. And it's necessary for total overall maximized productivity. It's really a pretty neat science. You've got limited resource. Did I say I wasn't going to go there? Let's not go there. You all know what it's about. It's maximizing fruit production. I love maximizing. We want to maximize production. We want to win our race. And we want our church to win our race as a church. Not just any one of us individually. The husbandman, Jehovah, is the vine dresser. The God of heaven set up a kingdom in the days of Rome's great power, and he rules over it. He gave all authority to the Lord Jesus Christ as the king of his spiritual kingdom. As the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, he judges his own kingdom. And he judges his apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. He judges them, and he judges those under their care. He has the authority. He has the power, the right, and the means to bless or curse anyone. He can bless and chasten to bear more fruit, called pruning, or purging, feeding, fertilizing, or he can cut that thing off and burn it up. He's the Lord of glory. It's his kingdom. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus had thoroughly taught throughout his ministry the close relationship he had to the Father. Rejecting Jesus and rejecting the doctrine of Jesus is the same as rejecting God the Father. He had taught that. The father loves his son. Any disrespect to Jesus Christ brings the wrath of God down. That wrath of God can be chastening wrath. That wrath of God can be everlasting wrath of the eternal torments of hell, as it is for all reprobates. If Jehovah God is the husbandman, this fact is great comfort for us to fear him and obey him, and it's a great warning against backsliding. It's all in one, one clause. And my father is the husbandman. That's serious business. Mm-hmm. Going to church is not driving to an address and sitting in a pew. Right. That isn't Christ's religion. That's not Christianity. It's not even second cousin. It's disgusting. It's lukewarm Vomit. It's what Jesus Christ blows out of his mouth and spews out. He can't stand it. He would rather you were cold on a golf course cursing than to play games with his religion. And it's all in this first verse. I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Now if my father is the husbandman, We have all the power of the universe at our disposal to accomplish anything he wants us to do. If my father is the husbandman, you better be on your guard and beware because it's serious business taking my name and pretending you're a Christian. So that's what we get out of verse one. Verse two, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. That's the work of a husbandman. That's the work of a vine dresser. And who's the vine dresser and husbandman in this case? The Lord Jehovah, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm the vine, but he's the husbandman in this picture that God wants us to have. We are the branches. He's going to tell us that down here in verse five. You're the branches. He's the vine. We wanna be attached to him. How are we attached to him? Let's make this so simple, by faith. We believe in him and are attached to him, by love of him, by love of his doctrine, love of his kingdom, love of his people, and by obedience to his commandments. He just said it 10 minutes earlier in chapter 14, so much so that he worked his way down to verse 20, And said, at that day, and we understand that to be after his resurrection, just a few days later, at that day, ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Now that is close unity. And what is it based on? Faith, love, and obedience. Do you want me to simplify it? Three things. Faith, love, and obedience. Faith in God, love of Christ, and obedience to his commandments. That's how we abide in him. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Every branch in me. This must be in Christ practically. This is not in Christ eternally, legally, vitally, or finally. Can you be taken away finally once you're in heaven? Not a chance. Can you be taken away out of the book of life, out of election? Not a chance. Can you be taken away from justification? Not a chance. Can you be unborn again? No. 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 So it's none of those phases of salvation. This is the practical phase of salvation of ministry and conversion. Ministry, because we're talking about apostles, conversion, when we apply it to all of us. This is the practical phase of salvation. Can you lose your practical salvation? Most do. Why does that surprise anyone? It baffles me. I know where it came from. It came from puritanical Calvinistic writing. Because the Arminians know. Let me tell you something. The Arminians are far wiser than Calvinists when it comes to can a Christian lose their salvation? Absolutely, definitely, for sure. We just define it by the practical phase of salvation. They can't lose their election, their justification, their regeneration, or their glorification. But can they lose their conversion? Certainly. They deconvert. Happens all the time. Happened in the New Testament. So, every branch in me, in Christ practically... In Christ practically. Can there be false professors there? Sure, but they're not really in Christ. So why do you even want to talk about them? Right. A false professor, in the, in the use of these words by Calvinists, is a reprobate that gets baptized. The Lord doesn't care about reprobates that get baptized, and either do I. Right. And why do you? Nothing has changed in their lives They were born going to hell and they die going to hell. Who cares if they squeeze into a church? But are there elect in Christ that don't bear fruit? Most of them. It's sad. It's worse than that. It's terrible. We need to return to the time of the martyrs. There was more fruit bearing in the time of the martyrs. There's too much prosperity today. There's too much peace. It's too comfortable. So we're drowning in luxurious living and lazy lifestyles. You read through the books of the New Testament, those churches that were just months and years removed from having an apostolic ministry. I'm nothing compared to the Apostle Paul. But his churches would quickly go astray. Ephesus, that was Paul's church. Revelation 2, they had lost their first love. Laodicea was another church of Paul's. He wrote epistle to the church at Laodicea. It was to be exchanged with the epistle to the Colossians. They were lukewarm. They weren't bearing fruit. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Thank you, Lord, for taking them away. Let's make sure he doesn't take us away. How do we make sure he doesn't take us away? We abide in Christ and we bear fruit. What is fruit here? It's part of the metaphor, the parable being explained because we've got to remember the vine. So it's grapes. We've got a vine, we've got branches, we've got a husband or a vine dresser, and we've got grapes. So that's the metaphor. What are the grapes? What's the fruit of a Christian's life? For the apostles... It was to be the foundation stones of the New Testament church. That was serious fruit for us. For us, it's to bear the fruit of the spirit in our lives and to influence lives around us by winning souls and being a tree of life to others. That tree of life is not helping them think politically. You haven't helped anyone to help them think politically. It's not to help them work hard. That isn't the Christian life, to help someone work hard. The Christian life is to show them Christ and teach them, show them, move them, press them, provoke them to be lovers of Christ and to find their all in all in him. Finding their all in Christ, they will end up being hard workers. Finding their love in Christ, they will end up knowing where politics fits in because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He tells them to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He tells them Caesar is under my foot. He's under my thumb. And so everything finds its balance by us leading others to Jesus Christ. We want our church, it always, to be the preeminence of Christ. There's a danger in our book of Proverbs. I try to finish every proverb commentary, 915 of them, by turning the reader toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, right. Don't skip that last paragraph or the penultimate paragraph, the last two. Read them, because those are the more important ones. Right. We want to take the principle of wisdom that's given to us in the proverb and apply it to our Christian life. Every branch in me. Oh, Every branch in me. Men. You're gonna have some other apostles. There's gonna be some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. They're not going to abide in they're not gonna bear fruit. My father's gonna cut them off. What product what was their productivity? They were to preach the gospel and to do miracles worldwide. Go ye and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark Mark chapter 16, Matthew chapter 28, and so forth. They were to gather fruit unto eternal life, which is the conversion of sinners. John chapter 4. Peter declared at the council of Jerusalem that Gentile fruit was by his mouth. God chose men. He stood up in that council and said, God chose by my mouth that the Gentiles would hear the gospel and would believe. That's tremendous fruit. If they did not abide in Christ, but had gone back to Moses if they hadn't abided in Christ and had gone to Peter, if they hadn't abided in Christ and gone to the Egyptian religion, there wasn't going to be conversions of Cornelius' household. Cornelius' household was converted because Christ was preached to Cornelius. He already feared God. He knew of this historical person named Jesus, but Peter got to tell him all about Jesus. And he believed it and obeyed. Paul outworked the other apostles and got Corinth. He says, though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you only have one father. I have begotten you through the gospel. 1 Corinthians 4, 15. Our Lord's parable the talents and the pounds surely applies to the apostles. He gave one to a man, two to a man, five to a man. And the word talent is not an ability the word talent is an amount of money. That's why I prefer Luke at times, because he uses pounds. And you say, well, that does, does he, did he add weights to them? No, because you still aren't thinking. It's an investment, because Jesus gets to the end and said, why didn't you put my talent in the bank? Well, how do you dance in your bank account? How do you, listen, it's all nonsense. It's monetary amounts. It's an investment of grace. It's an investment of grace. And one man had an investment of grace and did nothing with it. He hid it in a napkin. Look at my beautiful coin, Lord. Look at that. Take it from him and give it to the man with 10. Because in Jesus Christ's religion, the poor get poorer and the rich get richer if you don't take advantage of the vine. Right. You're, here's what happens. If you're a little dinky branch and you're not bearing much fruit, a good husbandman will cut you off because you are taking nutrients that could go to another branch that is highly efficient and bearing more. The poor get poorer and the rich get richer. The branches grow stronger because there's more in the metaphor that Jesus Christ gives us. There are definite rewards for ministerial faithfulness taught throughout the Bible. And faithful ministers are very conscious of their duty to Christ, not their duty to men. Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. What other productivity was expected of the apostles and of us also? God saved us to have good works. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So that is the fruit that we ought to have in our lives. The good works, a changed life, what the Bible describes the good work. So the Bible says you starting with faith, good. The devils have it too, but you've got a good start. Faith, let's add to that faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and knowledge, patience, temperance, godliness, brotherly kindness and charity. Those are things called fruit. Those are good works. And those are the things that we're supposed to add. You heard some from Psalm 15. Things we're not supposed to do, things we are supposed to do. They're good works. And we want to be bearing that fruit. It's the best way to live. It's the only way to live. It's the God pleasing way to live. He won't cut you off of Christ. It helps other people to see your example. You provoke them by your living example. We want to show and tell people, about Jesus Christ and good works. Mm -hmm. Disciples have visible spiritual fruit and good works. Let your light so shine before men that men will see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Fruit is is Christian growth and grace. It's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. How happy are you? We know because it's on your face. A person that says you don't know how happy I am is a liar to themselves and a believer of the lie. That's right. Because the Bible says that a merry heart hath a cheerful countenance. That's right. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. There's no limit on these things. How big of a cluster can you have, Zach? Zach. And I say that to every one of you. Nathan, how big of a cluster can you have? I don't care if you're Cabernet or white Zinfandel grapes. How big of a cluster of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or of faith, virtue, knowledge, patience, godliness, temperance, brotherly, kindness, charity. Or hospitality, entertainment, love of the brethren. Lord, help us. Right, there it is. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And there's all kinds of ways that he can take us away. A true Christian has a changed life with new conduct. What God and Christ have done for us should produce purification of our lives and production of fruit. He that hath this hope in him Purifieth himself. Right, right. He prunes his own bush. He prunes his own branch. First John 3.3 3, Because we've been adopted as the sons of God. Right, right. That's an incredible concept, thought, doctrine, fact. Right. That we've been adopted by God to be his children for him to bestow the universe to us by his last will and testament through the death of Jesus Christ. We're right. going to rule the universe right. as the sons of God. 1 John 3, 1 through 2 says that, but verse 3 says, He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. We want to be like God our Father is. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. God cannot and will not take us away from our eternal, legal, vital, or final phases of salvation. If you don't know those, you need to go find out about them. We can only lose our practical salvation. We truly cannot be taken out of Jesus Christ in those other ways. However, you can lose your place in the practical phase in both Christ or his kingdom. God took Eli and his entire family away. God took King Saul and his entire family away. They didn't even really know it until they were gone. Everyone else knew it because it was in writing. And we have this in writing. God took Eli and Saul out of his church and away from his blessings. Saul could have had the dynasty that David ended up with. Mm -hmm. God sends heresies to get rid of those not abiding in Christ. Heresies will arise among us. I'm waiting for the next one. Not eagerly, but I'm waiting. It's coming. We'll have some sort of a heresy arise among us because the Bible promises it to get rid of some more branches not bearing fruit and it doesn't matter whether they're reprobate or elect. That's none of your business. We don't want them as part of our church, whether they're reprobate or elect, if they don't bear fruit. It's First Corinthians 11, 19. For there must be also heresies among you. There must be heresies among you. Right. There must be heresies among you. That they which are approved may be made manifest that the ones abiding in me and the ones bearing fruit can be visibly displayed as not going along with the heresy. And so every time it happens, I wonder what the fallout will be. What will the collateral damage be by other little weaklings that cannot understand that heresies are God's gift to us? To prune branches. Oh, I love this husbandman. Listen, I have worked for other bosses before. And I did not respect them because they did not have the courage or the authority to do what was necessary to have the most productive organization. But I work for the Lord of glory, and he has never failed me. And he has never failed this church. And he takes stones away and replaces them with better stones. And he takes branches away and blesses the remaining branches to bear more fruit. They went out from us because they were not truly of us. And God will make sure that he exposes them. He can take away your physical life for disobedience. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. The Corinthians that were weak, sickly, and in the church cemetery... Many of them slept, meaning their bodies were horizontal in the cemetery at the church of Corinth, Paul's church. God can take them away physically. Jesus promised to take the spirit from Ephesus. I will take my candlestick away. He promised to spew those out at Laodicea. He can take his spirit away and leave a dry carcass in here. He can do that to you. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Corinth had allowed false teachers in and could lose much because they couldn't retain in memory the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that is filled with hope, by which also ye are saved if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. God could so deceive you, deceive your family, or in worst case, deceive your pastor to where we would be misled and lose the hope of the gospel. As they did at Corinth, Paul's church. They allowed teachers that taught there was no resurrection of the dead. A minister can cost himself and hearers practical salvation. Take heed unto thyself, Paul told Timothy. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. Those two things. Lest you use, lose your salvation and those that hear you. Right. You can remain a visible member, but have leanness of soul. Psalm 106 and verse 15. Israel begged God for quail. Why did they need quail? Because they weren't happy with manna. Why did they have manna? Because God gave them manna and God had given them his promises. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Do you know where those words come from? I hope you know they're in Luke 4.4, and they're lost in all modern translations of the Bible. But they come from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. God dwell with those people. The thing that should have excited them was what excited Joshua. When Moses would go into the tabernacle and God would come down and talk face-to-face with Moses, that's how it's described. Moses didn't see the face of God. That's how it's described to help you understand that it was a close relationship. Because when it's face-to-face, is it better than Skype? Is it better than a text? Is it better than when he's in Portugal? It better be. If it's not, talk to Sherry. We want face-to-face. They had face-to-face with God. But they wanted bread. Then they wanted quail. And so God sent them quail. But do you know what he did when he gave them quail? He sent leanness into their souls. He can take us away in all kinds of ways. You know, we simply think, he's going to kill me. Oh, that's the nicest thing he can do to you. If you're a child of God, the nicest thing He can do to you is take your life. Then you're in heaven, you can't sit anymore. You don't have any more of our troubles. What's the worst thing He can do? Make you prosperous and send leanness into your soul. That's what He can do, and that's what He does. And when when it happens to a minister, how much fruit is being bore by His ministry? He's talking to ministers. Nothing dries up. Lord, have mercy upon us all. Paul took care to keep his body under rule to avoid himself being a castaway. Did Paul say that? Yes. But I keep under my body, lest when I have preached to others, I myself, I have been asked so many times, can a child of God fall away? Where do they get the question? Of course he can. Paul was afraid he would. But I keep under my body, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The best example of a castaway is King Saul. The Lord left him and didn't return. The Lord left him. He spent his last night with the witch of Endor. Terrible. He could have had the dynasty of Israel. Jesus could have been the son of Saul. The Bible says so. But wasn't Jesus prophesied to come out of Judah? That's right. Because God already knew all that was going to take place with Saul of Benjamin, that profane man. Lord, help us look at these verses and to let the fear of the Lord take hold of us and yet the comforting ministry of the Lord. This is, this is not to scare them. This was to tell them, you need me. You need me. You need me. You really need me. That's what it's all about because he said in verse 18 of the previous chapter, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So I'm I'm your vine guys. I know I'm leaving. I know I'm leaving and you're scared. You're thinking Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost is going to have 1 million people. There's going to be 100,000 on Temple Mount. And you're going to be gone and you want us with our third-grade reading experience from Nazareth to get up and preach in front of those scribes and Pharisees, those doctors, doctors of the law. You want us to do that? I am the true vine. Don't look anywhere else. Keep yourself close to me. Love me. Love my doctrine. Keep my commandments. I'll be with you. My Father will be with you. He won't be snipping unless you have a little bit of imperfection that he can make better. He's going to be there to help you. It's a husbandman. He's going to be fertilizing the vine. He's going to be with you. I'm going to be with you, both by the Holy Spirit. Guys, don't be scared. You can do this. You can bear much fruit, but you've got to abide in me because every branch that doesn't, doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He's going to nourish it, cut it, clip it for decorative purposes, for productive purposes to make it better. So enjoy his chastening. Get into Psalm 119, 67, 71, and 75 about the faithfulness of God's afflictions because they make you better. And did those apostles get better? Did Peter get better? Was Peter pruned between this night and... And Pentecost. It's only 50 days. Was he pruned? Did it bear fruit? What in the world happened to Peter? I want it to happen to me. Lord, let it happen to me. What did I just say? I'm going to have to desert you for 24 hours. And see what you do in 24 hours of desertion. Anyone ever been there? Mm -hmm. That's what it took for Peter. Peter. Satan hath desired to have you and to sift you. But I've prayed for you, Peter, when you're converted, when you come out of this, strengthen your brethren. That's how he perfects us. But it's the the father's the husbandman. Instead of, this is not a terrifying passage. You know, I've got to deal with some terrible events that happened because of the words, he taketh away. He taketh away. The Apostle Paul knew about that possibility. You know, he warned all the Gentile converts in Romans chapter 11. He said, be not high-minded. You Gentile converts, don't be high-minded because God has cut off some branches of the Jews and grafted you in. If you are not a natural branch, he can uh, get rid of you a little easier than the natural branches. So be not high-minded, but fear. And behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. To, to To the Jews, he was severe. To you, he's been good, but he can be severe to you. If you don't abide. Romans chapter 11. What does it mean to abide brethren? To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything he's taught. And what the Bible says about him. To love and embrace Jesus Christ. As the joy and purpose. And person of your life. To love his doctrine. His teaching. His commandments. His way of doing things. And to obey all of his commandments. That is to abide in him. Apostles. Apostles. Don't you dare go back to Moses. Don't neglect my doctrine. Don't cuddle up with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I've blasted them every day of your lives. I've accused them of having the leaven of, the leaven of the Pharisees. I've told you all those things. Don't cuddle up with them. I'm the true vine. You hang with me. You follow me. Keep my commandments. Love me. My Father will love you. We will continue. You can continue in our love of you, and we will see you through what you're about to do, and you'll turn the world upside down. Let's turn this church upside down. Let's turn our families upside down. God hasn't guaranteed us every single family member. But every family member that is one of his, let's make them great Christ lovers. Let's make our church great Christ lovers. God hasn't guaranteed that everyone sitting in here today is one of his elect children. But let's push and press and exhort and encourage and those that are elect will bear fruit and those that won't will leave because they won't like this church. There's just three questions that need to be asked in the first eight verses. Just, Just a There's really only three questions. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Believe, love, obey. I simplified it to three words. There's three questions. Number one, all eight verses can be answered with three questions. What does it mean to abide in Christ? It doesn't mean to visit him on Sundays. It means to abide in him. You're with him, in him, seeking him, pursuing him, loving him all the time. Second question is, how can some be taken away? I just showed you there's all kinds of ways you can be taken away. Taken away from Christ, you don't even know it. Taken away physically. Third question, what is much fruit? And I've mentioned that. Fruit of the good works that we're supposed to walk in, that God saved us to walk in. It's being a better husband, being a better wife, being a better parent, being a better child, being a better citizen, being a better master, being a better servant. It's bearing the fruit of love, joy, peace, and the rest of the fruit as it's mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. It's crucifying our flesh and the lust thereof. It's doing Psalm 15 and doing it for the Lord's sake. That's fruit. It's working to share Jesus Christ with others. It's being a tree of life to others. It's correcting brethren that are in error to save their souls from death. He that winneth souls is wise, and the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. It's doing those things. We're not apostles but we have fruit that we should be bearing. Change lives, influence on others,